0: Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbine, community based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices.
1: And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth.
0: Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. Well, we were both delayed this morning.
1: Good morning.
0: Uh, good morning to you. Good to see you. You too. I missed you last week. Or I mean, two weeks ago. What, what came out today? Yesterday, yeah. Interview. Oh, yeah, it's today.
1: Yeah, great interview. I really enjoyed. I, you know, um, we always have to listen. We record and then we listen again just to make sure that you know everything sounds good for you guys. And so I got to um, listen to the interview with Sarah with them and uh, our beloved host Stu, and um, it was great. I wish, I wish I had been there, but um, I'm sure everybody's really enjoyed hearing that.
0: Yeah, you know, Wednesdays are crazy days for me and probably for you as well, because not only do we record and I have to do all my homework in the morning, but everything comes out, you know, the new podcast comes out. So Instagram blows up and you and I both try to respond to people as much as we can. And then I get emails with incredible stories of joy and woe. You know, sometimes we read a joyous one, often we read a woe one. So yeah. we did get one today. I don't know if we'll have time for that one today, but we'll we'll get it in, in the future because it's really a good one. Um, what's uh new on your front out there in California, Crazy California?
1: <laughs> um, I'm back in Santa Barbara for a little bit on in the midst of my traveling to see clients. You know, the one thing I would say is as I was driving into Santa Barbara, it felt like home, which was really nice. And I spent a day in LA and I went to some of the spots that, you know, I would enjoy. And I was like, well, it's not Santa Barbara. And uh, when I drove into Santa Barbara, I was really happy to be here. So that feels great to know that for now I'm in a a place that I really like.
0: Yeah. And a place that you like to come home to uh, is is so much better for all of us. Um, Our mental health is so important. And And some of us live our whole lives on high adrenal fatigue mode and we're Mm -hmm. always stressing out. So having that sanctuary is a great place to, totally. yeah, I mean, no pun intended, the word sanctuary. And you, and you met your grandbaby. I did. First of all, I'm wearing my uh, father's day shirt. It says uh, dad's established 1996. My daughter sent me this shirt. So that's pretty cool. And yes. And then I was in new Orleans. With Sandy, my ex, and Andy, uh, Alex's twin brother, Alex and his girlfriend Haley had a beautiful baby girl on June 23rd, and I got to meet my first grandchild, and oh. she's gorgeous, and it was great.
1: That's so exciting! I love
0: yeah, that. New Orleans, New Orleans is a um, well. We were up in we were up on the north of Lake Pontchartrain, so Pontchartrain, excuse me, and we were uh, in Mandeville uh, in that area, so. But the weather there is just oppressive. <laughs> it's just oppressive. <laughs> I mean, it's hot here where I live in southern Utah, but it's it's a dry heat, you know, it's 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 doable. Yeah. Uh, there the lows at night was in the mid 80s. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's
1: how Sacramento, where my boys live, exactly yeah, the, the same. The humidity
0: was high. And it was it was, you know, nobody does anything. And I can see why people just eat and sort of get a little bit overweight when you're down in that area, because it's just, there's no way to, to work it off. It's just too hot. hot. (laughs) Anyway, Mila Marie is beautiful and I'm very excited to, uh, have met her and be a part of her life. And, and, uh, I can't, you know, I just can't wait till she gets old enough where I can start teaching her wisdoms. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully. She'll listen. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm a I it's nothing against um my my family, but they went the medical route, you know, mm-hmm. hospital birth, epidural. Yeah. Uh and you know, that's what Haley wanted, and that's what mm-hmm. Haley, and Haley got what she wanted. But then Alex is texting me during labor, you know, she's two centimeters, she's three centimeters, she's five centimeters, she's seven centimeters. And it's like I'm saying to myself, how the hell do they know this? And you know how Yeah, she had, she's a multiparous woman, had seven vaginal exams over a 10 hour period of time. Yeah. My first picture of the baby is wrapped up like a burrito with eyes glistening. Yeah. We know what that means, that she got erythromycin.
1: Yeah. And then I
0: found out later that uh, she also got vitamin K and hep B. And, you know, I mean, <laughs> for me on the podcast, I'm almost embarrassed. Because I'm so against those. Well, I'm certainly against hepatitis vaccine for a newborn. It's it's completely insane um, to give it to people who know that they don't have hepatitis. But yet they do it anyway. And the nurses couldn't wait to do it. I don't offer unsolicited advice to my family. They ask, I'll answer. But otherwise, it's their life. They make their decisions. And I respect that. But I don't want my baby Mila to be, you know, to get... 72 shots over the next and then who knows how many more will be added uh in the coming years to just to go to school so yeah coolie yeah other than that i'm back home for a little bit and then uh, next week i head to south bend indiana which by the time this comes out i'll be home from south bend indiana to do Mm -hmm. a reteach breach class i'm very excited to get back on the horse and, and do some more teaching and uh so that's that's it for me Fourth of July, by the way, here in Kanab, Utah, was the sweetest thing ever. It oh, reminds well. me, I was a little kid, and we went to Lake Independence in Minnesota, and we watched fireworks, and they had a parade downtown. It lasted almost an hour, and just, you know, Jeeps and old cars all gussied up, and little kids, uh, and, you know, and the high school cheerleaders and the dance classes, and they had uh, color guard. And then everyone was, every float that went by was throwing candy. I I really can't call them floats. It's not really, when you take a Jeep, and put a little bit of tinsel on it, it's not really a float. But um, throwing candy and little kids would run out in the street and the whole street was lined, the main street, you know, four or five deep in people just there. We were sitting on the curb and watching it. It was just so much fun. So I, again, I just, uh, I, I really love my hometown. Like oh, you-
1: I love that. I love that, and in Santa barbara it's uh it's a big to do with the fireworks, so there's it's just really packed down by the water. They still do the fireworks kind of over the water or near the water out there, but I have my little bike, so I could just cruise on in and cruise on out, and that was fun. It was fun to like have something fun to do. Santa Barbara' is a great town for community. I thought stuff. of you
0: yesterday because I took my bike. I went on a bike ride around eight PM, and I ended up uh, in the F- north end of town, or the, I guess it's the yeah the north end of town. North end of town. I get my mi- directions mixed up where the park is, and it was just completely packed. And I watched the first twenty minutes of the fireworks display, and then I rode home in the dark. And unlike you, I don't have a light on my bike, so I was it was a little hair a little hair, but did it anyway. Uh,
1: so our topic today is cholestasis. Finally. Which- Yeah, we've had a few requests to do cholestasis because we had not done that yet. So we're excited to be able to share with you um, our perspectives on that. And then um, you have some things in between before we get started on the topic that you wanted to talk about.
0: Yeah. And I also want to just say that we've talked about cholestasis before on the podcast, but we've never dedicated a podcast to it. So problem is is that you know people they'll write us and they'll say did you talk about cholestasis and we'll go well i think we did but we have no way of knowing it so now we're going to have one that's going to have cholestasis in the title and people will be able to find it and i as usual i did a lot of homework uh for our podcasts i read these things so that our listeners and fellow travelers don't have to thank you <laughs> it's hard to read some of that stuff okay um just some follow up this is from bronwyn who we read a letter of hers on the podcast not too long ago, and, and she has a comment about our advanced maternal age or geriatric pregnancy contest, and she, has a, she wants to make clear of an explanation that I don't think that you and I made clear, so I'm going to read this. She says, the idea that chromosomal abnormalities increase with age always seems to come back to the, quote, old eggs, unquote, theory. We all know women are born with all the eggs they will ever have, so the obvious conclusion is those eggs just deteriorate with time. But that conclusion doesn't explain why anyone under 35 has a Downs baby. If it's all just a matter of age, then why would it ever happen to a 20-year-old? Chalking it all up to age does nothing to explore the mechanism what goes wrong. What I learned from Natalie, Natalie is a, she has a YouTube channel called Fertility from the Soul. What I learned from her is that she's not the only one putting this out there, to remind me of the biology I learned in college. Eggs are in stasis until a few months before they are released. And then they go through mitosis and meiosis. You guys Mm -hmm. can look that up if you don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. That's when things can go off the rails. The eggs are as as they ever were, even past age 40. But as people tend to accumulate health issues with age, those issues can negatively affect the impact of mitosis and meiosis process. Thus, increasing chromosomal abnormalities and the higher Down syndrome rate in older women. And it also explains why these things can happen to younger women, either spontaneously or if some health issue interferes with their egg maturation. With all that said, I would love to know the stats of healthy older women who take care of themselves as a subset of the entire population. But we know that will never happen.
1: <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Bronwyn.
1: Um, and I and I want to um, make sure I've said it. I've said it before. Just a little correction that we learned from our client, Kelly, when we talked about her advanced maternal age and her sweet son who has Downs, is that they like to be referred to as having Down syndrome rather than a Downs baby. So just.
0: Right. I'm, it's going to hard for me to going to get that. It's imprinted in my brain. So it's going to. yes.
1: Ha- I know. It's just it.
0: like talking with Sarah Wickham last week. When whenever I can, instead of using the word risk, I'm going to use the word chance. I love that, by the way. But risk is still going to come out yeah. because sometimes risk is the appropriate term, but because you can't, chance won't fit in the sentence, right? The the syntax would be wrong. But mm-hmm. um, I'm going to try to do that, but still risk is going to come out of our mouths yeah. all the time, right? Just like provider and practitioner. We can't, <laughs> providers become part of the language now, even though I hate it. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, this next letter is from uh, Instagram from uh, uh, Instagram at birth on the daily. And she just writes a common complaint that I just want to emphasize and get your take on this. She says, this is the second post this week. She sent me a post on this hospital, not letting moms or doulas take their placentas without a court order or religious exemption. (laughs) Piedmont hospital is a pretty big hospital system in the Atlanta area. And they are now scaring moms away from what is rightfully theirs. She asked for my thoughts. And I said, do you, and she said, do you have any thoughts? And I said, always, (laughs) because I do. Um, I said, it's stupid. No, it's really stupid. And it's another example of stage one thinking and paternalism. Hospitals have brainless policies about blood and waste products. For example, a tampon at home gets thrown in your trash. A tampon in the hospital has to be placed in a red hazardous waste bag for incineration. Go figure. People don't know that. And there's an extra cost for that, right? We can throw bloody stuff out all the time, a bloody Band-Aid, a bloody, you know, a tampon. If you have a bloody bandage, whatever, you can, you, we can do that. And there's no problem. You can take your placenta home and throw it out. If you want to have a home birth and you don't want to keep it, you can throw it out or you can plant in the backyard or do whatever you want with it. But if it's in the hospital, they have hazardous waste rules. Now there's also a financial interest in them sending the placenta to pathology because then they can bill for that too. Home placentas are not hazardous waste, yet the hospital is unable to think out of their box, and no logical reasoning is likely to change their policy. So legal action is inevitable. Again, it's really dumb. The placenta doesn't belong to them. And then she says, a doula friend of mine called the hospital and said there is nothing that could be done without a court order, which honestly makes no sense and seems like a waste of resources and people's time. Our birth culture honestly sucks here, but this policy has me in shock. And then I said to her. What would they do if the dad just picked it up from the counter and took it? (laughs) The police? Maybe. She said they probably would. You know, I don't support births in that hospital system because they make it impossible for women to have any sort of autonomy when it comes to their birth body and baby. I advise anyone I talk to who is planning on birthing there to look elsewhere. If that's what they want to say. Now that's that specific system. This isn't true of every hospital. Most hospitals are fine with you taking your placenta, I just want anybody listening to talk to anybody that they may know that the placenta belongs to the family. And if they say you can't have it, you just stand your ground and say, no, I'm taking it. And you can do what you want with me. And then they can call anybody they want, but you illegally, that placenta belongs to you. It does not belong to the hospital. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And you know, maybe the, um, the birth workers in that community could do something collectively um, preemptively to help change the policy there because she's right. You can't, I mean, placenta, using a placenta for the benefits has a time limit to it. You know, it's going to go bad. It's not going to be handled properly, those kinds of things. So you wouldn't be able to do individually get a court order for something like that, especially no, you family, wouldn't. yeah, especially a family who's you know dealing with postpartum. But maybe the community, the birth worker community, there can start to do something to try and press that hospital to change their policies. That's what I would recommend.
0: Right. I wish insurance companies didn't pay for placental pathology uh, in, uh, unless there was a clear indication for it. Which I can tell you, there's almost never a clear indication for it because placental pathology is one of the most useless lab tests you can ever run because it almost always it almost always comes back oh acute and chronic uh, chorioamnionitis even on a placenta born by cesarean section electively that they'll find infiltrates of plasma and and white cells and they'll call it acute and chronic chorioamnionitis and it doesn't mean anything Mm -hmm.
1: and there you know there is rumors or evidence i don't exactly know i've seen pictures legitimate pictures of it, but they are using placenta for other means. They don't always just toss them out. There's hospitals that are selling them for, um, the stem cells and different things for cosmetics and cosmetic procedures. So that they might have a financial incentive to not want to release it. Wouldn't it be well.
0: great if, if if hospitals were subject to freedom of information act requests and you could ask them what they do with the placentas and they'd have to answer you? Cool. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, one thing I want to mention, because you it, know, it by this time, it's old news now by the time this podcast comes out, but, you know, Kemi and uh, Aaron, two of my favorite uh, British Instagram people, have mentioned that there was this death after a forceps delivery. I don't know if you saw it, Bliss, but it was pretty much all over Instagram. A lot of people re- reposted. it. I guess it's not retweeting. It's reposting it. And, um, you know, my thoughts are that this, again, gives, gives forceps a bad name and gives another excuse for those that are teaching future generations to not use this skill or teach this skill anymore. Forceps used properly are life-saving, and they're not used very often anymore, but when they were used and they were used appropriately, not like when I was born, where they put them on everybody,
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: and, um, but when they're used appropriately are life-saving. And they can be, because you can get a baby out literally in, in 10, 15, 20 seconds with forceps that might take you eight minutes to 25 minutes to do a C-section on. And if they're done correctly, they're life-saving. It's tragic when something bad happens. And I think that the, that this is a, another nail in the coffin of forceps, simply when the story like this goes out, uh, because the medical model and those that teach residents... Are already so um, risk averse. Well, they're not really risk averse. They're averse to the risks that they can't control, which we've gone over many, many times. That they'll they're not going to be bringing it back, and so there's going to be less and less doctors that do it. And some people will think that's a good thing. Good. Then we'll then it will be gone because we'll just die off, and nobody will know how to do it anymore. But babies will suffer um, because of the because of the lack of that that obstetric skill. I just wanted to say that.
1: Yeah, I can. No, I mean, I, I agree that um, the, most of the tools that, that have been used historically have some benefit to them. Not all, but some benefit to them. And when used judiciously, like we've talked about before, can be life-saving. And so um, my son, my eldest was delivered after many, many, many hours of pushing at a birth center was delivered. By Dr. Wu, who's now passed away, with forceps and otherwise, I would have had a cesarean, and I was very happy to not have had a cesarean delivery. And we did just about everything else we could do to get him out um, before that transport. So I know that in the hands, and I, you know, I don't think I've ever actually seen you deliver with forceps, but whenever we would attend births together, they would be right there. For the just in case, like like all of our emergency
0: procedures. So
1: yeah, I don't know much. Yeah, about I mean, much- I
0: put Piper forceps on five times in the 12, 13 years that I was doing home breach birth. And it was early on in my breach training before they really went back to upright breach birthing. Um mm-hmm. and then I've put it on a couple of times. I remember Beth was at one of them. The problem with any technology, list is that it comes in and and it has useful uses and then what happens is it gets abused yeah and 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 then it becomes part of the culture and then and then there's an overreaction to that and then and then the initial reasons why it was put in get lost because it was abused and so all that is remembered is the abuse or the overuse this is not just true in medicine this is true of a lot of technologies yeah i mean look at the internet is great But you know it's constantly abused, and some people are completely addicted to it. Yeah. So anyway, there we are. Okay. So I just wanted to uh, to say that because it is a tragedy, and I read those posts with interest, and I love Kemi and Aaron, and uh, I know how bad that they felt about these things. So okay, let's take a quick break from one of our sponsors because we love our sponsors. Elements, a tasty electric-like drink. They've been sponsoring us for a while with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means a lot of salt and and with no sugar, as you like to say, none of the
1: BS, just like us.
0: It's formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs. It's perfectly suited to folks following a keto, low-carb, paleo diet, but not for our pregnant patients who shouldn't be on any of those. Okay, (laughs) Uh, But it's good for pregnant women. It's good for postpartum women. It's good for uh, birth workers. It's good for people who are outside working out. Summer's coming on. It's going to be hot and sweaty.
1: Yeah, and it's grapefruit season. I just got my box.
0: Yeah. Well, not only is it grapefruit season, but but they also comes in a bunch of other flavors: yep. watermelon, citrus, orange, raspberry, raw, your favorite, mango, chili, lemon, and chocolate, raspberry, lemon course.
1: habanero,
0: lemon habanero. What is a habanero anyway? It's a
1: It's a spicy chili.
0: Okay, yeah, there you go.
1: You know, the other day I was at a very long birth, and we went to get some electrolytes for the mom to see if we could help her with some of the things that she was dealing with. And we, every one of the birth workers that was there, had some too. We're like, we all need it. Let's all have some element. Yeah, and
0: it it comes in a little packet so that you you don't have any waste.
1: Right, like throwing
0: bottles away and stuff like that. You can just use it in your reusable container. We love that. That sort of thing. So we love that. So you go to drink element. That's drink l m n t dot com backslash birthing instincts and you get a free sample pack with any order great thanks element
1: thank you we're back
0: isn't that great how that works (laughs) (laughs) i just love when we do that uh it's so fun okay so let's talk a little bit about cholestasis but before we do i've got a couple of letters that kind of will lead into that so okay these are letters from last year (laughs) there's my big pile over here and yeah, I had to go. And I write on the top of the letters, I write, you know, gestational diabetes or placenta previa or cholestasis. So I, I dug out two that were on cholestasis. And I uh, hope these people are still still listening. Their kids are about a year old now, but that's okay. Um, this is from Jelaine. And Jelaine writes I'm writing to inquire if you have any episodes on obstetric cholestasis.
1: <laughs>
0: well, we will now. Not uh, yet. To you and Bliss, speak about the actual risk benefits of things different of different things during pregnancy and delivery. I thought it would be good to reach out to you as I've reached a dead end researching the true risks of this condition. Everything I'm finding says, quote, risk of stillborn, unquote, or quote, risk of fetal distress, unquote, etc., but doesn't list the percentage risk. So it doesn't do actual risk. Anyways, I'm trying to arm myself with solid info before my next appointment which was last year. <laughs> I'm assuming I will be diagnosed with this and told induction is necessary. Thank you for any information you can offer on this. Your grateful listener, Jelaine. So, Jelaine, we're going to get to that in just a second because you're right. The average doctor when they hear the word cholestasis or a woman comes in complaining of itching, we'll talk about this in a minute. Immediately cholestasis if they're more than 36 or 37 weeks, immediately think let's just induce labor. That's the thought process. I know that because that's how I was taught. And that's what I'm seeing in the letters and stories that I hear of what doctors say to people. And so uh, speaking of that, here's a story. So this is from Miranda, also from uh, last November. So it's an older story, but, you know, fairy tales are old stories and they still carry a lot of weight. So I we just go. got
1: a Got got an um, Instagram DM request last week asking if we could do cholestasis. So there are many people who are looking for this episode.
0: Well, that's why we're doing it because we've had several recently just requests. Yeah. Of people lo- looking and trying to ask us, have you done an episode on it? And I had thought we had. Mm-hmm. And then I went back through every, every episode and every show and I couldn't find it. So we're, that's why we're here. Okay, so this is from Miranda. She says, I've been wanting to email you about my most recent birth in which I was diagnosed with cholestasis. For my second birth, as I neared 37 weeks, I experienced an, a night of intense itching, primarily in my feet and somewhat in my legs. The itching was so bad that I could not sleep and had to get out of bed. A quick Google search led me to cholestasis. By the morning, my itching subsided and never came back. In fact, I almost forgot that it happened. I me- <laughs> Here's a mistake. I mentioned it at my appointment a few days later, when I was 37 weeks in one day. The midwife ordered labs for me to get done that day so that we could determine if my bile acids were above 10, which is the standardized definition of cholestasis is a combination of symptoms and laboratory work where the bile salts or bile acids are above 10, whatever units they use. The next day, I received a call from a midwife with the results of two liver enzymes that were also tested, and both were high. Those are called the transaminases, AST and ALT. And they can be high in cholestasis. Uh, They don't have anything to do with the prognosis of cholestasis. They can be confused with other things like hepatitis or possibly HELP syndrome. So it needs to be ruled out. But um, often in cholestasis, you'll also see elevation of the liver enzymes. She explained that this could mean that my bile acids were all so high. However, the bile acid results take longer, usually three to five days. She had consulted with the head OB at the hospital who recommended that I in- get induced that day, just in case I do have cholestasis. Okay, so that would be listed under the category, uh, Bliss is shaking her head, uh, under the I category, am. dumb doctor dogma. Okay, So immediately, that's what I said earlier, the doctor hears the term possible cholestasis baby in the bassinet, baby in the bassinet. He said, it's not worth the risk to wait for these results since I have reached 37 weeks anyway. So to him, that means what, Bliss? That induction has no risk.
1: Right. But, you know, the lungs are developed. And so there's no real benefit of staying pregnant because it becomes riskier and riskier. It's a perspective that we don't share.
0: Right. And, they, and and the evidence doesn't bear out either, but that's okay because they're stuck in their little their little box. I was blown away that they didn't even want to wait for the lab result to come back. In my gut, which I trust implicitly, it just did not feel right to quickly jump to an induction. I did not yeah. want to make mm-hmm. a decision out of fear. So I told the midwife I would like to at least wait for the results to come back. I should mention that she prescribed me uh, ursodiol right away. So that I could start taking it just in case and ordered a biophysical profile to be done in the next few days. Wow. Uh, we'll talk about ursodiol. Ursodiol is a, a medication that's used to help control the itching. Uh, there is maybe some benefit from taking it and some of the other things. And I'll go through that in detail when I get when I go through the review. But the truth is she had no symptoms anymore. Right. OK, so I'm not sure that there was any good reason to prescribe her that medicine.
1: No. And also, you know, just based on that alone, I can understand doing the labs, sort of. Why not? Right. Like, it's just a lab draw from a midwife. Um, But I would assume, and maybe you can correct me from the deep dive that you've done, um, that if it was true cholestasis and we were really at risk of some adverse event, the itching would would intensify, not just come and go. Correct, from my experience?
0: Yes. um, Again, nothing is 100%. But yeah, symptoms will usually persist or get worse. That's true. Well, you're going to find out in a minute. In the meantime, I quickly tried to learn as much about cholestasis as I could. I discovered that most people don't seem to know much about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Most people, who does she mean? Hmm. Okay. Uh, Including the midwives at the birth center. Um, I learned that while a bile acid number over 10 is an automatic diagnosis, that's true, how high the number is greatly matters. If the number is above 10 but below 40, the risk of a stillbirth is 0.13%. Mm. So 0.13%, just for people who don't know what that means, is 1 in 769. Okay, because I did the math, because <laughs> I'm a geek. <laughs> so, um and, and the risk of stillbirth as well as I'll mention again I'll just bring it up now but overall stillbirth rate in the u.s population is is one to three per thousand so point one to point three so point one three is on the low end of the normal risk of stillbirth in the normal rate uh in all women in the United States okay so <laughs> elevated oh forty mm-hmm. She says, Well, my bile acid number actually came back the very next day. So it only took a total of two days, which sometimes, depending on how they do it, they can run it faster. If they do an enzyme assay, it's faster. And her number was 12.3. So okay. the doctor wanted to induce her without any number. And with an episode with a, a level of 12.3, the the essentially the risk to her baby of being induced in prematurity and problems was far greater than anything that that you could do just by waiting. My husband and I decided that as long as my number was nowhere near 40, we were comfortable continuing the pregnancy. Little did I know how much I would have to continually say no. Yeah. Okay. Because of rules and guidelines that midwives and doctors are stuck with. Of course, the diagnosis meant I, that I could not continue my care at the birth center. So she risked out because she had yeah. a level of instead of 9.8. Okay. Okay. Um, I was strongly advised to find an OB since I was now a high-risk patient. The OB spent nearly an hour trying to convince me to have an induction that night or this weekend. He generally could not understand why I would be against induction. In his mind, I was full-term, so why not? You just said that. Okay. I was also going to get biophysical profiles done twice a week at this point. I'm going to talk about the uselessness of that test in this situation in a minute. After each ultrasound, different MFMs would come talk to me about the same thing, offering to schedule me for an induction on the same day. The mental strength it took to continually say no to an induction multiple times a week was so draining. I would often come home from an OB appointment or ultrasound and just cry. Uh. It was during this time that I actually discovered your podcast. I found so much encouragement in the stories of you tell of women advocating for themselves and going against the norm, I scoured your episode descriptions, hoping I would find one about cholestasis, but could not. Okay. Well, that will never happen to any women in the future. Okay. <laughs> At 39 weeks, I was still feeling uncomfortable with the OBs pre- and and the practice I was in. And I found a midwife who would take me on, even on short notice. She was the first person through this whole ordeal that showed sympathy. Or what I would call empathy, actually. When I was 41 weeks in one day, my midwife was very confident that it wouldn't take much to get my body into labor as I was three centimeters dilated, 70% effaced. But she wanted her to go to the hospital to do it. So amazing, when my husband and I went to the hospital the following night for the scheduled induction, I was already having contractions. Not sure why that's amazing, but that's good. In fact, um, I took one oral dose of Cytotec, even though she was contracting already. The labor and delivery in the hospital was better than I could have ever hoped. My husband and I were mostly by ourselves for the next four hours, which is amazing, actually. Allowing him to sneak me food and drink. <laughs> oh, so sneaky, sneaking, I guess, is better than not sneaking. So a hospital that allows sneaking is better than a hospital that doesn't allow sneaking. Would you, would you agree with that?
1: You don't know because you're sneaking. And most people, if they're informed, will sneak food, which I'm glad right,
0: right. But she says the labor and delivery in the hospital was better than I could have imagined, or I, I could have hoped. And it's like,
1: Good.
0: well, they could have let you eat. That would be within <laughs> the, within the realm of hope, but no. The midwife and nurse barely got in there in time to catch my baby. He came after only three pushes. I will say there was something unexpectedly empowering to have a natural, and then she says unmedicated birth in the hospital setting by unmedicated, I mean, I think she means no epidural.
1: Right. because obviously
0: she got side attack. Okay. Right. To be surrounded by equipment and and so much stuff but still delivering without needing any of it. I even declined the IV as well as the pitocin they wanted to give me immediately following the birth. The staff in the hospital were so impressed that it did not need an epidural. <laughs> a few hours after the birth, we were still waiting for a room in the postpartum wing. So I asked my nurse if I could go rinse off in the shower. She was caught off guard and said, "Quote honestly, Ninety-nine percent of our mothers have an epidural, so I'm not used to someone being able to walk so soon, ha ha. She quickly got some towels for me. Finally, this leads me to some questions I have for you, Dr. Stu and Bliss. Do you have any wisdom and experience with cholestasis, specifically when the case is so mild? Also, in preparing for another pregnancy, do you have any recommendation to try to keep my bile acid count low? Have you heard of women using a liver specialist to help manage this part of their pregnancy? I would like to avoid this diagnosis again. If at all possible, I will admit, though, that if I become high risk again, you have me strongly considering a home birth. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Thank you so much for all the time you took to read all of this. Thanks, Miranda. So, Bliss, just off the top of your head, all right, because I know that I'm asking you this question cold. Um, do you know of, of liver support, nutritional support? What What do you tell people for liver support? You, you So, you, liver you,
1: support is and the and- same um recommendations that we would make for uh preeclampsia so somebody who is borderline preeclampsia. I don't have my herbology uh recommendations right now, but I can post them in our show notes so people can access them. Um but one of the things I usually tell someone at that point when something is borderline is to use acupuncture. Because acupuncture can be a really good adjunct to the work that we do to and um they're very used to, to uh, doing needles that would support the liver. Um, so preventatively, what we would be doing already is a well-balanced nutrition and activity. Um, and that a lot of times, I mean, I have not, knock on wood, ever had to transfer someone out of care for preeclampsia, cholestasis, or gestational diabetes, because when we get borderline, we're able to add things in that can support their body. Um, but preventatively, you would want to be doing close to what the brewer's diet is, which is 75 to 100 grams of protein. Um, and then for those people who start to show signs of something like preeclampsia or cholestasis, then we start to add in some herbology, acupuncture, and those kinds of things to just support the liver a little bit more.
0: Okay. Yeah. Hey, say say herbology again.
1: Herbology. Why?
0: Reminds me of Hermione Granger. So I just (laughs) love when you say that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's talk a little bit about the science behind cholestasis. This is, you know, this is where I do those deep dives and I'm going to try to keep it entertaining. So here's my
1: my questions for you and, and uh, I'm sure that you'll go through them, but just, um, I would, I would love a description if you can about, what exactly is happening in the body when we start to have the itching from cholestasis and like what, how is it taxing the liver specifically? Um, How does that affect the increased risk of, or as you said, statistically it's about the same, but um, from a medical perspective, the increased risk of um, stillbirth. Uh, Yeah. Those are the two questions so far that I think would be really great to kind of start with.
0: Okay, so I can talk about the itching part just off the top of my head because um, when the bile salts begin to uh, back up inside, the mechanism and why it happens is really not well understood. And I, I do have some explanations in here. Sometimes they think it's a genetic thing, people and susceptible people, but they're not sure why. But is bile salts back up, they're normally bile is normally in your intestine is not in your body and stuff like that bile salts that back up. If it starts to deposit in your skin, it just causes it causes a reaction that causes you to be very itchy. Why the palms of the hands and the, and the soles of the feet. I don't know. I really don't. I don't know. Do you know by chance?
1: No, but that skin is different than the rest of your skin. So maybe it's just more sensitive to it.
0: Yeah. I mean, maybe there's more, maybe you're right. I mean, the sensitivity of the, of your feet and your hands is more than most, and maybe it has different types of receptors in, and again, this is all speculation. Maybe there's maybe histamine release, which may occur uh, affects those areas more than other areas, but classically that's what they say it is. But, you know, you see people scratching their bellies and this woman, uh, Miranda had, it was in her feet and her legs um so there's no classical necessarily presentation about it i i i hate when people uh pigeonhole things like that and say well if you don't have it here then it can't be that or that because it can mm-hmm. okay right
1: so so, what typ- about, so typically but oh, well when we when midwives are um screening for this we would be asking people about itching and there's another thing called pups which is not cholestasis, but it does cause little red bumps, very super itchy. And that's usually just on the abdomen, but just the skin stretching in general during pregnancy can cause itching. So I don't want anybody who has itching in pregnancy to automatically assume that they have cholestasis. Normally it's hands and feet. It can be the entire body. Um, But if you're in question, what that midwife did was probably the right thing to do. If you're in question about where the itching is coming from, then you can do blood work to just kind of rule that out and make sure. But you can also try and apply oils and stuff topically. And I always tell people, if you're going to put anything on your skin, it should be oils that you would eat. So almond, avocado, coconut, that kind of thing, because your skin will absorb it. Because it could just be that your belly is stretching and your skin is stretching and you need a little
0: additional support. Right, and and again, this usually doesn't happen until late second, and mostly in the third trimester. And the the importance of levels is such because the the morbidity is related to the levels. So just calling someone cholestasis and saying we need to induce you is really wrong. And it, even in the, the evidence, I'm going to go through. Um, it's very clear on that. So let's let's do that. But because it, some of the things you talked about are, I'm going to discuss, and I don't want to get things out of my brain in a certain order. You know how my brain is. So cholestasis, also known as intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy, or ICP, is defined based on itching, which we call pruritus in medicine, and elevated serum bile acid concentrations with or without raised liver enzymes. So it doesn't really matter. The liver enzyme thing could be raised, could not be raised. But the diagnosis really is based on clinical presentation of itching and then drawing blood and seeing that the bile acid level is above 10. That's the standard standard yeah. definition.
1: Can you remind me what labs we draw to?
0: Oh, it's just, bile- it's just a, a metabolic panel, which carries okay. your liver tests in it, mm-hmm. and then serum bile acids. Okay. Okay. And I'm going to talk about the two different kinds of draws and the ones that come back faster, fractionated versus unfractionated, and I'll, and I'll go through all that. All right? Great there is a association between cholestasis or ICP and association with stillbirth. All right. But, and that's what permeates everything in medicine. The, the, the fear of stillbirth overwhelms the logic and the science and the, and the common sense of, of most practitioners. And so they, they ignore the, the data. ICP was associated with a high risk for spontaneous preterm birth. Uh, Iatrogenic preterm birth. I love that. So spontaneous preterm birth and Iatrogenic preterm birth. What is Iatrogenic preterm birth, Bliss?
1: That's such a hard word to say, but that is caused by medicine. It's not. It's not. Yes, it's the opposite. That's
0: doctors jumping the gun and delivering babies prematurely because they're scared of something which may or may not be valid. Meconium stained fluid is higher in in, um, women with ICP. But the question is, is that relevant? And what does that mean? Because we talked, we did a whole podcast on meconium, and then higher rates of NICU admission. All right. Now, are is, are NICU emissions higher because the babies are more likely to be preterm? I mean, yeah. So or that
1: nervous about that baby, that mom being diagnosed with it, and then assuming that the baby needed to be monitored more, not even showing that it had any signs of
0: concern. Right. And the odds ratio with that was only 2.12, which means it's only twice as common. But still, again, these raw data. There's a whole problem with numbers and statistics. I've got an example at the very end today of of how like the you know the old thing, the old saying about there are lies, damn lies, and statistics, and and they can be used to to mislead people. So we're going to try to dispel some of that just now. For singleton pregnancies, stillbirth risk was associated with a maximum total bile acid concentration, um, and treatment with the uh, ursodeoxycholic acid or ursodiol, as we say, did not significantly affect this association. So that medicine is really for symptoms, and it doesn't really decrease the rate of stillbirth. Okay, so what is the rate of stillbirth? And we we talk briefly about it when when the values are between ten and forty. The risk of stillbirth is 1 in 769. And this is from a very large study that they did, all right? When it's between 40 and 99, the risk is 1 in 357, or in other words, 0.28%. So 99.72% chance of it not happening. Right? Wow. Those are in those are in line with the national rate of stillbirth for all women. So mm. Under 99 does not have a higher rate of stillbirth. Now, will there be stillbirths in women with a value under 99? Of course there will. But there might have been, even if they didn't have cholestasis in the first place. So it's hard to know whether it's related to the cholestasis or not. But yes, there will be some. There always will be some. There's no way to prevent all stillbirths.
1: The fact that it's not actually higher than someone who doesn't have cholestasis, but it is one of the main factors of why we are responding to it. This is just such a perfect example of why a deep dive into these things can really help you make an educated and informed decision.
0: Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. I mean, one thing I've discovered, Bliss, in, in all our years doing the podcast together is, is that pretty much everything that I was taught in residency was wrong yeah. or misused Yeah, You know, I don't know a better word than that, because I induced women when I was young, a young doctor or a resident uh, for cholestasis. And we didn't know anything about the numbers. If they had cholestasis and they were over 36, 37 weeks, we brought them in for an induction. Didn't matter if it took three days and they ended up with a cascade of interventions. We thought we were doing the right thing. But now we know better and they're still doing the same old thing. Right. Right. Like the doctor in the story that Miranda told us. Okay, now when it's over a hundred, the risk goes up to one in twenty-nine. It's a lot. Still, <laughs> you know, one in twenty-nine is only about what three, three and a half percent, or something like that, four percent, three percent. But that's considered really high, and I think that people, most people, would agree that when it gets that high, that the the risk of or the chance of something bad happening. From induction is less than the chance of something bad, really bad happening if you don't induce. So I can see where that would come into play. But still, we have to look at that over, we have to look at numbers as they are. Okay. So the risk of stillbirth with ICP increases compared to the general population when serum bile acid concentrations are greater than 100 micromoles per liter. So what they conclude is the study, the authors of this study and the Lancet commentary that went with it conclude that under 100 micromoles per liter. Women with ICP can be reassured, and that repeat weekly bile acid testing should be done until delivery. That makes sense. Yeah, because if it's climbing, you know you don't have to wait till it gets to 100. If it was 12 and then it was 37 and then it was 82, you might consider at that point that it's only going to get worse. And depending on what your gestational age is, you might decide to not wait till it's over 100. But it's because it's headed there, and that's an individual decision. That's from. it's, oh, it's from a Lancet article in 2019 and a study that was more in the Lancet. So what I want to get into is the real details, which is this. This is from the um, Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine's consult series number 53. And like ACOG, they put out their papers, This the Society of it, or SMFM. And this is called intrah- Intrahepatic cholestasis of Pregnancy. And I went through it. It's a lot of pages and a lot of everything. And I went through it. And I'm going to highlight the things that are important. I took out my highlighter as Bliss knows. And I went through it. So from the Society of Fetal Medicine, they say the incidence has been estimated to be from 03 to 0.5% of the population get cholestasis. So that's not a lot. It's like 1 in 200. Okay, 1, in 1 in 200, 1 in 300 women will have cholestasis. Although ICP poses little risk for the pregnant woman, it confers risk to the fetus, including preterm delivery, meconium stained fluid, and stillbirth. And this is all, just that sentence right there is all that most doctors will hear. In pregnancy, cholestasis is most often self-limited and resolves after delivery. What is the differential diagnosis of pruritus in pregnancy or itching in pregnancy? Pruritus is a common complaint that affects approximately 23% of all pregnancies, as you yeah. said, Blith. Right. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is yet only one in a hundred of these women who come in with this complaint of itching will have cholestasis. Absolutely. So 99 out of 100 women who come in complaining of itching don't have cholestasis.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The most frequent pathological cause of puritis in pregnancy uh, is called atopic eruption of pregnancy. And it's associated with an eczematous rash on the face, eyelids, neck, anticubital and popliteal fosses, which means uh, behind your knees and um, in your elbows, trunk, and extremities, all right? In ICP, itching is often generalized, but predominantly affects the palms and soles of the feet, is worse at night, and is generally not associated with a rash. Right. But most people with uh, with uh, cholestasis do not have a rash.
1: We're going to talk a little bit about our sponsor, Needed. We love them. They have an amazing company. And you know what, you guys? Your prenatal nutrition isn't cutting it. So they redesigned... The prenatal vitamin for you to be optimally nourished. They came out with a new product. I mean, I just feel like every time I turn around, they've got a new amazing product. And this one is an immune support. It's easy to take, delicious elderberry powder to support optimal immune health for the whole family.
0: You know, I was hiking the other day and I saw an elderberry bush.
1: You recognized it? Of
0: course not. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> no.
1: Brilliant. Really
0: no, but the midwife <laughs> I was with recognized it right away. <laughs>
1: Um, 70% of the immune system resides in the gut. So comprehensive support is needed. Most immune support products aren't designed for all ages and stages. Their immune support is safe and effective for the whole family, kids, pregnant and nursing moms included. So that is perfect for our follow-up. Yeah.
0: So go to their website at uh, thisisneeded.com and look through their products. I mean, not only do they have a prenatal vitamin, uh, which we recommend, but they have sleep and relaxation support, stress support, hydration support. Collagen, a pre and probiotic, which I think is a good thing um, yeah. for a lot of us to be taking, yeah. especially if you have immune issues or if you uh, had recently taken antibiotics or something like that. They have a whole thing for men, so you can men can look at that at their website as well. So again, we love their we love their sponsor.
1: And what makes them different is optimal nutrient forms, dosages that help you thrive, easy to take at all stages of pregnancy. They were formulated with practitioners, and they're recommended. By over 3,000 women health experts just like us.
0: And I was going to say that.
1: <laughs> I stole your.
0: You stole it. No. Okay. So go to thisisneeded.com, just spell it out and use the code Birthing Instincts to get 20% off your first order. Thisisneeded.com. I think you get 20% off every order, but just, mm-hmm. just uh, use the code word Birthing Instincts at thisisneeded.com. Thanks, Needed. Thank you. So let's get back to the basics. How do you evaluate somebody for that? Well, you take a detailed history and physical. That's what you should always do. And although ICP is not associated with a rash, the intensity of the itching can lead to development of excoriations, which may be mistaken for a rash.
1: Which means you know, that they're itching it, and then it looks like a rash. Yeah,
0: yeah, skin is all irritated because they've been mm-hmm. scratching it so much. Mm-hmm. So that's important to take into account. So, what about the laboratory evaluation? Well, total and uh, they they recommend only getting the total bile salts, but they but a lot of labs will do total and fractionated. Fractionated is not helpful, and it also takes longer. The results usually take between 4 to 14 days, depending on the technique and the lab that you use. So you could find out in your community how long it takes, to, and you should know that as a practitioner, you should know how long it takes to get the turnaround. Uh, the total bile acid level can also be assessed by enzymatic assay, which can be sent to a specialty lab. But some hospitals also do it, and the turnaround time for the enzyme assay ranges from four hours to four days, so much faster. Although the enzymatic assay does not provide a fractionated bile acid level, the utility of fractionated levels is limited, and the most clinically useful value is the total bile acid level. So that's what's relevant, is that number we talked about going from above 10 to over 100, that number, all right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We already mentioned that a total serum bile acid Acid level of greater than 10 is often used to diagnose ICP. Although the data are limited and the diagnostic accuracy has been questioned, increases in the level of transaminases can also sometimes be seen in ICP, although elevated transaminase levels are not necessary for the diagnosis. And we mentioned earlier that you should just if you do have elevated transaminase levels. You want to rule out things like hepatitis, which you're not going to see very often, but you will, and also mm-hmm. early preeclampsia help type syndrome. Some people say you should get a fasting, you should get this test fasting, but ultimately it doesn't matter. Uh, Random bile acid levels can therefore be used to diagnose ICP and are typically more convenient for the patient and the practitioner. So you don't have to make a person come in fasting, which is important because you'll hear that a lot. Okay? Are particular women or populations at risk for cholestasis of pregnancy? Okay, so women with pre-existing hepatobiliary disease are reported to be at higher risk for ICP. So women that have gallbladder disease, hepatitis, other issues, uh, non-alcoholic liver cirrhosis, other things that can happen to you, which again, rarely are we going to see in the midwifery world. Um, Those people are more likely to have, to develop cholestasis. And patients with a history of cholestasis bliss are at risk for recurrence. The specific degree of risk is unknown or chance is unknown. So it's more likely to happen, but that doesn't mean anything unless you know what the number is, and nobody really knows what the risk is. And can it be prevented by doing the healthy things that you mentioned earlier? ICP likely results, this was a question you asked earlier, likely results from both environmental and hormonal influences in genetically susceptible women. But the mechanism's not really known. So we don't really know why it happens. But the suspicion is that why do some people get and others? It's probably genetics, and it might be some environmental Thing that's going on that again has not been pinpointed as of yet. Okay, Mm -hmm. what are the complications of cholestasis? Well, we talked about the stillbirth rate. I'm not going to go there again because we've already done that. Uh, In prospective cohort study, initial study came out showing that levels greater than forty found a higher incidence of stillbirth in the population with cholestasis compared with unaffected controls. Um, They said the pathophysiology of stillbirth in ICP is poorly understood. But here's important. It's been hypothesized to be related to the development of fetal arrhythmia or vasospasm of the placental chorionic surface vessels induced by high levels of bile acids. So if it's thought that it's fetal arrhythmia, this gets really into it, and we'll, we'll talk a bit more in a, in a second, but that is not something that's picked up by fetal testing. Right. I mean, have a perfectly normal NST today and have a fetal, fetal arrhythmia four hours later. Right. Right. Same thing with humans, with all of us. We could be walking around just fine and suddenly go into VTAC and drop on the floor. So that can happen. And they're thinking that the bile salts may screw up the electrical conductivity of the heart or some other thing that is, again, not predictable, but only seems to happen when it's above above 100.
1: Right. So the large
0: systemic review and meta-analysis came out that said that women with a total bile acid level greater than 100... Was the problem? Whereas women with lower bile acid levels were found to have no increased risk. However, these data should be interpreted cautiously because in most of the cited studies, and this is a good point, this is th- this is logical thinking. These people thought this out. The patients were managed to prevent stillbirths, and the management strategies may have mitigated the risks. So there may be higher risk when it's up at above forty, but when somebody has levels that are that you know are above forty you're going to be paying much more close attention to them. You're going to be doing things differently than you would have if you didn't know at all.
1: Right.
0: So that's maybe why when it's known and the risk is over a hundred is more significant. So a less than a hundred does not mean no risk just so people know that. Okay. Yes. Uh there is some evidence to suggest that patients with ICP are also at increased risk of preeclampsia. Mm-hmm. And I think we, uh, I know that I have, I have seen that. That's why the liver tests, you need to be sure that when they're elevated, that you you know you check their platelet count, you check their blood pressure, you check protein, you do all those other things to make sure that they're not developing preeclampsia at the time.
1: Yeah, because um, they're in the liver.
0: Yeah. Women with total bile acids of greater than 40 were at the highest risk of developing preeclampsia. And the diagnosis of preeclampsia typically occurred two to four weeks after the diagnosis of cholestasis um and then proteinuria would be the first thing that they showed before we elevated blood pressure in all in all cases so if this is true then the diagnosis of cholestasis itself should not always lead to the recommendation for rapid delivery and we talked about that someone's at 37 weeks and they have icp with no evidence of preeclampsia and their and their levels are you know 26 there's no reason that that woman needs to be scared into being induced.
1: Yes. But you would continue to have them follow up with lab work.
0: Weekly lab work makes sense.
1: Maybe, maybe the, um, the biophysical profile, but you're saying like, it's not necessarily going to give you the, the indications of what we're considering is
0: causing the stillbirth. Yeah. I'm going to get to that in a second because I, I, I've got a, a good comment for that one. So Versa-deoxycholic acid is the most commonly used treatment for ICP. They recommend, and this is grade A, grade 1A evidence. So this is like the best evidence possible that the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine recommends that, I'm going to call it UDCA. UDCA be used as the first line agent for the treatment of maternal symptoms of ICP. Itching. Itching. So there's huh? great evidence. And good recommendations to use it if people have itching, mainly in some ways to prolong the pregnancy
1: and the and biomole. risk factors from that drug
0: um hardly any not that I know of because it doesn't it's not absorbed. You take it orally, it's a powder and or a pill, and it goes in your gut and it stays in your gut and it sucks the bile acids back into your gut. so okay. it's not systemically absorbed, it's not in your bloodstream, it therefore it doesn't cross the placenta that sort of thing. Data on whether UDCA improves perinatal outcomes are less conclusive. One meta-analysis reports that patients with uh, cholestasis who received this medication had a reduced risk for preterm birth, fetal distress, respiratory distress syndrome, and NICU admission. Other outcomes improved by the, the treatment included higher birth weight so I guess that goes along with maybe less prematurity. I don't know if they're related or if it's just indirectly related. However, in a 2013 Cochrane systematic review and meta-analysis of treatments for cholestasis, this medicine was not associated with fewer events of fetal distress compared with placebo, but it was associated with fewer total preterm births. So it does prolong the pregnancy because the women aren't going crazy, itching to death, and they're sleeping better and they're doing all those things. Um, but it doesn't t- necessarily decrease the risk of fetal distress or stillbirth, just to know that, okay?
1: Right. That's not what it's um,
0: about. We can skip that. We'll skip down to the part that I was talking about. How should a pregnant woman be with itching and normal bile acids be managed, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The pre- in ICP can precede the rise in serum bile acids by several weeks. So you can have a woman that's itching. You might think it's from stretch marks or from pups or AEP, with the other thing we talked about, but it doesn't mean that, that it, they aren't going to be developing cholestasis. So, therefore, if symptoms persist and there is no other explanation for the itching, measurement of the total bile acid level and serum transaminase level should be repeated. Some clinicians will make the diagnosis of ICP on the basis of the clinical symptoms alone and start treatment with UCDA, uh, UDCA. If UDCA is started empirically, however, at the time testing is performed. And before the results are available, it is possible that elevated bile acid levels might, or transaminases might never be detected because the itching will go away and they'll stop testing people. Yeah. So if you think someone has cholestasis or they have unexplained itching, it makes sense to draw your blood, even though we know that a lot of times blood tests lead to more blood tests and lead to more interventions and stuff like that. In this particular case, because we need to know what the value is, the level is, because it makes such a difference in outcome. Uh, it makes sense to draw your blood.
1: So with the UDCA, that's the meds, right? Yeah. Um, if she had unexplained itching and you prescribed it to her and it didn't help, would that also assu- make you assume that it has nothing to do with bile acids?
0: Not necessarily. Okay. Not necessarily. Okay. Nothing, nothing works universally. So it doesn't always make a difference.
1: I had a one- woman- that delivered probably seven weeks ago. And she had, she had itching her whole pregnancy. We did a bunch of tests, repeated them, uh, tried liver support, tried all kinds of topical things, you know, and it, we never, we never figured out why she was having itching in postpartum. She's still itching, but I think it's getting better and better with time, but it's one of those interesting things. And I did not know about this medication, so I didn't, I didn't suggest it, but she had it. She had her baby just fine and everybody's totally fine. So, and the tests were negative. You
0: know, there are, there are things that the body does when you're pregnant or, you know, that, that we can't explain.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just one of those weird things. So, okay.
0: But they'll never stop trying to figure out reasons to find an explanation so they can do interventions. That's (laughs) Even, even when the outcomes, if it doesn't change the outcome, they'll still do it. So. Speaking of interventions that don't change outcomes that they'll still do, <laughs> Okay, is antipartum tested indicated for patients with intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy? The efficacy of antipartum fetal testing to prevent stillbirth in the setting of ICP is unknown. It has been hypothesized that antipartum fetal testing in patients with ICP may not be useful because the mechanism of stillbirth is thought to be a sudden event rather than a chronic placental vascular process. So, Fetal antipartum testing is designed to detect placental insufficiency, but that's not the cause of stillbirth in in cholestasis. Right. right. Super-ICP is not typically associated with fetal growth restriction, not associated with oligohydramnios, or not associated with abnormal placental histology, which I think they mean um, grade, grade 3 placenta. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing it's associated with is like increased risk of meconium passage, which of course, as we know, doesn't necessarily imply anything.
1: No, but it could, it could um, include a hypoxic event, and I wonder if that's an episode that the baby has with its heart, and that's why they're seeing that. It's interesting.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't know, but see, yeah. even though it doesn't prevent stillbirth, the medical model will obviously do it anyway. Okay, as to not test would be seen as negligent.
1: Yeah, what was the term that Sarah Wickham used? Do you remember? She used
0: she, prophylaxis.
1: Uh, no, she talked about a term that specifically talked about when doctors are doing um, a procedure as to
0: not. Oh, um, yeah. You know, she gave the soccer, the soccer analogy, which I thought was a great analogy.
1: Yeah. But anyway, oh, we forgot. Not,
0: you know, I, I don't know if people listen. People have if you didn't listen to the serum. Wickham episode. the soccer analogy is tremendous. Yeah. It is known that the best thing for a goalie to do on a penalty kick is to not move.
1: Statistically, they studied. They they looked
0: yes. into it. But but goalies will always dive right or dive left, almost always. Even though they know in their in their brain that it's best to stay in the same place, uh, but they'll do it because the the idea of not diving will get them criticism. Uh, okay. For why did you try to get that? Why did you dive for that? And it's yeah. the same thing. I for, uh, I forgot what she called it. Something bias or something. She called it. Uh, we'll have to look that up. And that's exactly what's going on here. That's exactly. that in his biophysical profiles in somebody with cholestasis is going to make you look bad to your peers or, you know, medical legally. Uh, however, it's useless.
1: Or not inducing them
0: would also be one, that case similar. Well, they're going to, yeah. Yeah. They're going to continue to ask you to be induced and you're going to have to continue to say no because they want to be able to put down in the chart. Induction was recommended. Induction was recommended. Testing was recommended, even though the data doesn't support that in most cases, and certainly with um, any partum testing, that that's effective in any way, shape, or form right. with isolated problems related to cholestasis. So we have a new sponsor, Bliss. Dr. Lindsay has been our friend for a really long time. She's been a birth colleague. And her company, BirthFit, is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and postpartum.
1: Isn't that awesome? Like any phase of the journey you can use their programs. They even have a B community where you can go to if you're trying to conceive or if you know you want to in the next one to three years, which is awesome. They have a lying in program, which is in the first you know beginning of postpartum. Like what they say is even a day after you can start to get into this. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focus on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum period. They use breathing exercises, visualization, belly massages. So cool. And then they have an extended program called Postpartum Program. It's a 12-week program focused on building a base level of general physical fitness with simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. And all of the work that they do um, requires no or minimal equipment, um, so you can do it right out of your home. Um, and then, of course, they have the prenatal program. They have a, a basic 30-day program where no equipment is necessary. I guess if you can kind of test out and see if you like their their vibe. And then they have a more extensive pro- program, the prenatal training program, which is a full-term strength and conditioning program. Um, I mean, wow!
0: Yeah, I, I've no, I've known Lindsay for a really long time. She like, she was a chiropractor in LA before before they fled and moved to Texas. <laughs> uh anyway, we, we support them wholeheartedly because this kind of a program is great for our our clients and most of our listeners. Yeah. Um so you go to birthfit.com, that's B I R T H F I T dot com, use the code instincts one, all caps, instincts one with a number, not the not one, but the number, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program, or use code instincts two to get a discount on the basic postpartum program all right so we love birth fit uh it's ob and midwife approved
1: that's right and right. please support them and congratulations on your pregnancy lindsay thanks for joining the team
0: welcome to the birthing instincts neighborhood you know you've got a confounding problem like you know growth restriction or something like that that's different but if it's purely just they want to do this for cholestasis, the data is pretty clear that it doesn't do any good. However, (laughs) I love this. They want to, um, well, here, I I wrote this down. Antipartum fetal monitoring is recommended in the antenatal management of intrahepatic cholestasis. However, the type, duration, and frequency of testing has not been identified. The mechanism of fetal death are not understood. Most fetal demises occur late in gestation and may occur in the presence of previously reassuring fetal testing. There are no evidence-based recommendations for fetal testing in intrahepatic cholestasis, right? That's from ACOG, but they'll do it anyway. Yeah. Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine says, we suggest that patients with a diagnosis of ICP begin antenatal fetal surveillance at a gestational age when delivery would be performed in response to abnormal fetal testing results at the, or at the time of diagnosis if the diagnosis is made later in gestation. So in other words, if a baby's past 25 or 26 weeks, and a woman develops ICP, then they should uh, then they should be tested, even though everyone admits that the testing is pretty much useless. Yep. The optimal frequency of testing is unknown and may be determined by criteria such as comorbidities or bile acid levels. Due to the higher risk of stillbirth, patients with ICP should be placed on continuous fetal monitoring during labor. I just don't, I don't know. Are there reported cases of interpartum stillbirth? with cholestasis there probably are but i i I don't i don't offhand know of any i didn't really find any i didn't search for that do you know of any Liz? do you know anything about that i don't yeah okay well again i would think that this only matters for people with high levels of bile salts uh and i think people listening here can say listen 38 weeks and i've got a bile acid level of 27 um, I'm, I, w- I don't want to be monitored, and that would be fine. They're going to insist that you do, and you could ask them for evidence to say that that's going to prevent something and see what they come up with. Next to the last thing is, when should women with a diagnosis of cholestasis be delivered? The timing of delivery should be approached using risk stratification based on patient-specific factors, including the total bile acid levels, as we've discussed, in a shared decision-making model. The Society for Maternal and Fetal Medicine recommend that patients with a total bile acid level of greater than 100 be offered delivery at 36 weeks of gestation, given that the risk of stillbirth increases substantially around this gestational age. That's grade 1B evidence. That's not bad. That's pretty good evidence. We recommend the delivery between 36 and 39 weeks of gestation for patients with ICP and total bile acid levels of less than 100. And that's grade 1C. 1C is strong recommendation, low quality evidence. So again, maternal fetal medicine doctors are always going to err on the side of what they don't consider to be a risk, which is induction. And we have to decide, uh, and they say shared decision-making and all that stuff. I don't know if they mean that, but sounds nice, and I'm glad they said it. Okay? They also Mm -hmm. recommend the injection of steroids for fetal lung maturity for patients delivering before 37 weeks. And that's also grade one A evidence. So if you're if they're inducing you at thirty five or thirty six weeks, they're recommending antenatal steroids. Waiting forty eight hours, I guess, is the standard with that to help prevent babies from having respiratory distress. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Lastly, management should be based on shared decision making that involves a discussion of the uncertainty of the diagnosis, the risks of ICP versus early term delivery, and the values and preferences of the patient. Okay. What's missing from there is, again, there's little thought about the short and long-term risks of the induction itself. It's never mentioned. Right. It's never mentioned in breach delivery. It's never mentioned here. It's never mentioned in twins. It's always that induction is the default, safest way to go. And I think that people who listen to the podcast know that that's not the way you and I feel.
1: Yeah. And we've talked in detail about induction in the last few episodes. So if you missed those episodes, you should really go back because Sarah Wickham's uh, episode, you guys went really deeply into it. And then you and I broke down induction again um, in the episode before that, I think. So, or the one that's coming out after that.
0: (laughs) So Yeah. yeah. I'll bet our listeners remember the term that Sarah Wickham used. And it's been bothering me ever since you mentioned it, that my (laughs) brain just doesn't doesn't register certain things anymore it just it it does and then it's in and then it's out i know
1: because i know because it was such
0: a i just it was such a brilliant analogy i just love it yeah. okay so what is the lastly what is the likelihood of recurrence okay and this is a good question because people will ask this all the time the risk of recurrence yeah. of icp mm-hmm. may be as high as 90% although data are insufficient to counsel patients on specific ranges there are also data suggesting that patients with a history of icp are at higher risk for later developing hepatobiliary disease in real life, similar to women who have just pregnancy-induced sure. hypertension or preeclampsia developing hypertension later in life. There's something going on. And the fact that the recurrence rate may be as high as 90% just leads me to believe that there's something, again, either environmental or genetic, autoimmune, or something that's going on in a certain percent of the population that makes it that much more likely in them and and almost none in the rest.
1: Potentially, it's also has to do with your liver. So if your liver is already weakened in some way, or it's not the strongest part of your body, the stress from the pregnancy could kind of kick it into high gear and have cause you to have an issue. So doing the best that you can to get your liver healthy, which, you know, this goes into... As a midwife, we do low risk, we do preventative, we keep people healthy, but there are certain times when you're starting to go into a more, um, I was going to say high risk category. You have higher chances of things because that's a weakness in your body. So this is when you taking care of yourself and advocating for yourself, doing a deeper dive into some, maybe, um, from a functional medicine perspective, from a, from a, um, From Ayurvedic perspective, from a um, traditional Chinese medicine perspective, where they really look outside of the traditional medical model, the Western medical model here, and maybe give you some different answers of things that you might be able to use with food and herbs and lifestyle to be able to support that part of your body preventatively before you go into your next pregnancy, which answers um, the second question, the follower story that you read. I can't remember her name right now, but she was asking Brenda. if there's anything and that's what I would do. I would take a deeper dive with some of the more um, alternative modalities to see if they might be able to strengthen the health of your liver in general.
0: And just on a, on, on a human basis, what you said makes perfect sense and how we should think of these things. You know, I just have read a whole bunch of medicalized stuff, but the problem is, is that is culturally, the medical model only looks at a live baby in the bassinet. People have heard me say that over and over again, as the only endpoint that matters. Neonatal death, neonatal morbidity are the things that they use in their papers. So they want to prevent that and they want to get that baby in the bassinet and how it gets there doesn't really matter to them. And that's why cholestasis in the medical model is synonymous with stillbirth even though it's not right. It's taught in medical school and residency, cholestasis, stillbirth, cholestasis, stillbirth. And it becomes, it's, it's like that old thing where you say it often enough. It doesn't have to be a lie because it isn't a lie. It's just, it's just, it's fear mongering, but you say it often enough. You say it uh, more, you know, you say it with such fervor that it becomes truth. And so, if you talk to most practitioners who work in a medicalized model, who haven't taken a deep dive into this in 20 years, and you say that a woman has cholestasis and she's 38 weeks, they're going to tell you she should be induced. They're not even going to think about the, what the number means or the risk of induction or what the woman wants. Uh, they're going to recommend induction because they all, they're more comfortable when that baby is now belonging to the pediatric department. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's no longer beside the woman. That's how obstetricians feel. Maybe I'm projecting my, maybe I'm the only obstetrician that ever felt that way when I was doing, when I was practicing back then, but I don't think so. I think that most of my colleagues are just uncomfortable with any sort of risk that they can't control. And so that's what they do. And all these numbers that I've spewed at you and stuff like that, they're, you know, they're all true but we can get we can lose the humanity we can lose the the uh, individuality of what we do uh, when we start to dive into numbers like that so i just want to make that point
1: yeah and i think that we uh, as humans <laughs> need to to listen to the signs that our bodies are telling us and so something like this is saying hey your body is speaking to you i need something that i'm not getting so the pregnancy could be the thing that induced this, but you also want to dive a little bit deeper into your own health, because if it, if it causes problems in the future, then you can preemptively work on these things and bring yourself into
0: a, into a healthier balance. Yes. Yes. Okay. Two more things. Okay. Um, good. Fo- follow up after you give birth is important. Because you want to make sure that, especially if you have elevated transaminases, that they return to normal. Because there's a subtle um, infection out there in the community that we don't see very often in certain, in certain demographics. And that's hepatitis C. And hepatitis C is not something that's generally screened for in a prenatal panel. I did always. Yeah, I included I a hepatitis C uh, antibody on most of my panels. And I think most of the midwives in our area did that too. I don't know if we was. We all came to the conclusion together, or maybe there was something that came out. But um, routine testing for hepatitis C in patients with ICP probably makes sense. So if you're gonna draw labs and they turn out that they have ICP, the next time you draw your bile salts, you might want to draw hepatitis C along with it. Because it's important to consider that the liver function test results before and after delivery in patients with you know that have pruritus that persists or whatever could be uh, signs of subtle hepatitis C, which you wouldn't know of, which can you know, if without treatment, lead down the road to uh, non-alcoholic liver cirrhosis and you know untimely demise. So follow up makes sense if you have that. Okay. Lastly, um, just a strange thought for me because uh, there was a paper that I read that said intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy and neonatal respiratory distress syndrome, not respiratory distress, but respiratory distress syndrome. And in their results, they quoted this Bless And see if you can pick up where I'm going with this. The incidence of RDS in newborns from cholestatic pregnancies was twice that, twice the that the reference population, 28.6 percent versus 14 percent. Okay. Mm-hmm. Their reference population has a 14 percent rate of respiratory distress syndrome. Why Who are these?
1: People? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's. It was like it was like in the Arrive trial they had an extra high rate of hypoxic is, uh, ischemic encephalopathy over the, what what's normal in the, that you usually are quoted in papers. I've never seen a paper that shows that the rate of respiratory distress syndrome is one in seven newborns.
1: Yeah. Really? No, not usually. Like,
0: so again, this points <laughs> out to me the listeners the problems with research because. They're just, they're throwing out these numbers. As I just said earlier, they're throwing out numbers and I can bombard you with numbers. And sometimes we don't look at the numbers themselves and say, wait a minute, that just doesn't make any sense at all.
1: Right. (laughs) We just see that twice as high. It's twice as high.
0: Yeah. But their numbers are, I mean, they're saying one in seven women, or babies, excuse me, (laughs) um, that the reference and they, and, um. They compared what they did is they compared 77 neonates born from pregnancies with cholestasis with 427 neonates in the same range of gestational age born from non complicated pregnancies. Now, maybe some of these babies were born at 31 weeks because they were induced either appropriately or inappropriately, but still a 14% rate of respiratory distress in the control population is, cra- is crazy. And that just yeah. gets glossed yeah. Totally. Interested in the fact
1: that it's is risky.
0: Yeah. And they don't they don't address the issue. Okay.
1: All right. Thank you again so I for
0: I use to- the word okay a lot. I think okay means the end of a thought for me.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I uh I as always, even though you know I'm a midwife, I always learn something when you do these deep dives into the study. And I love that I have that um That that those numbers of like as the bile salts get higher and higher, the risk does increase. But ten, which is the original diagnosis number, is is you know not anywhere near what it would be if it was over a hundred. So that's that's really great information for people to be armed with. So thank you for doing that.
0: And I can't remember the last time. I mean, I don't see a lot of cholestasis when I was practicing, and I, you know, and and but I can't remember if I I ever saw one that was that high. Yeah. And well, you, I, I know that there were many times where I had people with cholestasis, and this 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 other paper only came out in the last two or three years where they with a with a hundred level. So we were always using 40 before. And so we, you know, I did things back then that I wouldn't do now based on what I knew then and what I knew now. You again, it just goes to show you should only judge people um by how they act in the time in which they lived. And you shouldn't judge them by today's standards. But but now right. that we know this, right. there's no reason to be um panicking when somebody has a when miranda Miranda has a bile acid of 12.7 or whatever it was and every doctor she sees is trying to get her to go and be induced now
1: yeah yeah and her instincts her instincts were something you know this is this is not necessary so that's a good thing to point out as well
0: as they as they usually are you know more often than not maternal instinct is correct
1: that's right
0: and uh, and should be should be an integral part of the decision-making process with my colleagues in medicine absolutely well having thank you. said that we now have an episode <laughs> <on post-tasis. Yeah. laughs> so we'll make sure it's in the title so people who search it can find it and uh, thanks for everybody for listening uh we appreciate all of you uh as always uh for being our fellow travelers so until Excellent. next time.
1: Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast.
0: We know that we all lead busy lives. So we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stewart, at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram.